everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey Mustachio Knockreiner. I think, Mark, I'm going to give you my personal donation link. I have done a horrible job because I don't like social networks of, of broadcasting my Movember stuff, even to my own family that I got to do during. I'm going to do it this holiday. But by the time you're listening to this, it'll be right at the last few days to, to help donate to Movember stuff if you're interested. So at a minimum, check out Corey's awesome mustache that he's been rocking all month. Yeah, it's going to start to go away December 1st. All, all the audio listeners, that was probably fascinating listening to us describe something you cannot the see at all. Corey's mustache. Uh, today's episode will cover a pair of <laughs> alerts from CISA uh, and some recent research from Microsoft's threat research team on a relatively popular uh, but severely out-of-date component in IoT devices. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and shave our way in. So let's start with the first one today. Um, and this story actually starts back in April of this year. Uh, this year being 2022. My birthday! Yeah, if you haven't already checked out for the entirety of the holiday season, like I think some people already have started doing. Uh, so uh, this report started with a, a report from Recorded Future uh, about a Chinese state-sponsored threat actor that was targeting India's power grid. So back in the re report back in April, Recorded Future described this pretty prolonged attack. I think it started back in 2020 um, that was linked to a group um, backed by the People's Liberation Army of China that appeared to have started their attacks by uh, or used, at least in their attacks, compromised Internet facing DVRs and IP cameras. So generic IoT tools. Uh, they were using those as the command and control infrastructure to then deploy the shadow pad malware. Uh, to their targets along the uh, India's power grid. So Microsoft at that time, when they saw that report, picked up on it and started doing their own investigation too, which leads us to right now, where just last week, Microsoft published their analysis of the likely attack vectors for those IoT devices. So in that original recorded future report, they listed a bunch of IP addresses as indicators of compromise. And Microsoft's researchers basically went through those IPs and tried to figure out what was the commonality between them. And they found, for the most part, that all of them shared this same vulnerable software component within their underlying systems. And that was the BOA web server. Uh, so for those that aren't IoT software developers, uh, BOA is a pretty lightweight web server. You can think of it like a little mini version of Apache or Nginx. Um, a lot of IoT devices use it to power their management consoles. Um, so how you would log into the, the web interface for your camera or your DVR, that would be handled by BOA. Unfortunately, uh, BOA development and upkeep of BOA was actually discontinued in 2005. So what, uh, 17 years ago? It hasn't had a single update since then. As you can imagine, that can lead to some potential problems. Um, through the research, Microsoft actually found 1 million internet-exposed devices that were using BOA in some shape, form, or another. Um, and despite being discontinued in 2005, they noted that this web server application is actually commonly included in a lot of popular software development kits, uh, especially ones that are used by system-on-chips, SOCs. So again, 
fancy speak for IoT. A lot of IoT devices, um, if they aren't running, or typically if they are running some flavor of Linux, um, they typically have these little system on a chip chips that are the CPU, some memory, um, sometimes storage as well too. And you use some of these software development against these SDKs in order to interact with the features on those chips. There's a really popular one by uh, Realtek, um, which has actually included BOA as the web server component for quite some time. And so in Microsoft's post, they noted that uh, Realtek's SDK actually patched two critical vulnerabilities recently, one in 2021, one in 2022. But they've left two vulnerabilities in BOA from 2017 and 2021 unpatched because there is no patch available because the thing hasn't been updated since 2005. So let's pause there for a second, Corey, and get your hot take on this. Like, I mean, I understand IoT is all about, you know, making something cheap and making something that works and is easy to use, does its job. And like historically, security hasn't been a feature of it. But like, Realtek is actually a pretty big in the industry, like SDK manufacturer, and even they are using some of these insanely outdated software components in the products that they release. Like, what the heck is going on? Cheap and easy. <laughs> they're, they're going for profit, not uh, customer security and satisfaction. We just talked about this. I mean, I, when we're covering open source, I can't remember. We do so many podcasts, Mark. Was it just last time? But... Uh, Basically, we talked about the problem with open source is while it can be secured, sometimes these packages are maintained by small groups or not at all. And this is like a great example of something that's widely used under the radar. I'll talk about that in a second, but something that's now discontinued was open source, not very maintained, and yet is everywhere. So I think it's kind of crazy. I think. Uh, manufacturing companies need to look at this. It's just part of why we keep on saying IoT security is circa 2000 security pretty bad. By the way, BOA, it's, it's interesting because I, I say popular under the radar. It's not the top web server as far as public websites at all. It's like market position of 72. You know, it's far under Nginx, Apache, IIS, and Cloudflare and all the others. So. But I think it's it's under the radar popular because it's kind of one of those web servers that's definitely lightweight. It's not meant for a website. It's meant for a web administrative interface of a lightweight, you know, ARM processor, probably IoT device. So it's one of those things that's really, it's interesting. It's probably not exposed to the internet often, but if anyone gets inside your network, you have all these web administrative interfaces that different devices have. And that's probably where BOA is, is more popular, as you pointed out with the SDK and Realtek. Yeah. And the two specific vulnerabilities that Microsoft like narrowed down to the likely intrusion cause are both basically like uh, information disclosure, disclosure flaws. Uh, one of them was a arbitrary file access vulnerability, meaning, uh, again, unauthenticated, meaning all you had to do is have network access to this web server, and you could read any file off the file system. And attackers were likely using that to read like the Etsy passwd file off of them, since they are typically Linux-based, which includes credentials for the device itself. And as we are well aware of, uh, default credentials and even changed credentials for IoT devices don't tend to be the most secure. And it can be relatively simple to crack the hashed passwords in that Etsy passwd file and then log into the system. 
Uh, some of the other activity they saw uh, on some of these devices, they saw different variants of Mirai, uh, that botnet from, what, 2016 now, um, being loaded on them. Uh, they also saw a lot of authentication brute force attacks against the authentication portals, again, that are exposed straight out to the internet. So, yeah, and I guess I just did a showdown. At first, I was going by a popular site that talks about web server stats, but now I did a quick showdown, a very basic server colon BOA search, and I'm finding 1.6 million of these. So I guess I'll, yeah. again, not the most popular, but it's kind of nuts to me that 1.6 million are exposed to the internet. And I really don't equate BOA to a normal website server. So I'm guessing these are all probably IoT services, which is kind of crazy. That's kind of nuts. Like, like imagine like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's difficult now that we're quite a few years into like the IoT revolution. Uh, and we've still got this massive issue of stuff exposed directly to the internet. And it does tend to be a lot of like IP camera and DVR systems, which I guess conceptually makes sense. Like if you're running physical security for an, a business, I mean, let's physical security is giving it too strong of a label. If you're the office administrator for somewhere and you've been directed by your boss to get security cameras that he can remotely monitor from uh, elsewhere, like, I guess you don't necessarily know if you don't know what you're doing, you'll just expose that port to the internet. And now you've got 1.6 million devices with this vulnerability from five years ago that can effectively allow you to read passwords off the thing and then log straight in. It's kind of frustrating. Yeah. And by the way, just looking at headers, I'm not going to click on any of these, although I don't think it's technically unauthorized access. But like the first one on the list is a gray tech. Uh, it looks like a wireless access point router, GWR1200AC. So like consumer gateway routers being exposed to the internet in Portugal. Another one looks like a Maxis broadband router in Malaysia, totally <laughs> exposed to the internet with, you know, its management ports, not to mention, I you can see all the other ports like RDP being exposed. So yeah, it's... It's crazy. Definitely webcams too, but lots of consumer routers. And so it was our, I think our spooky Halloween episode where we discussed the open source software act uh, most recently. And that's the one that like Google is helping champion and try and uh, incentivize pushing through Congress. And one of the items that's a part of that is a software bill of materials requirement for open source projects, at least. And so while that won't solve out-of-date projects, it will solve out-of-date components being used in open source, which would be nice. And it'll at least, at least force companies that use open source, like this old BOA server, to take a closer look at it and potentially recognize some of the risks that are associated with it. So, man, I don't know. Maybe one of these days we'll finally get the plague of IoT devices off the internet. It does feel like IoT is at least getting a lot of legislative attention lately. I know California passed that bill probably two years ago now, um, addressing mandatory minimum requirements for IoT. I know there's other states that have been floating them around too. At some point, something's got to give though. And I got to say a call out to our users though. I mean, I, 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 regulation might need to happen at this point, but I hate for it to come. Regulation should only happen when people are unable to act on their own. And I think the best way to get these sort of devices fixed is to stop buying cheap IoT that, ex you know, from unknown companies that expose it. 
if our supply chain predictions are true and people are going to start to consider security as part of the buying decision, that should be at home too. I mean, you should, I, I, I admit, because there's no regulation, because there's no like FDA for consumer goods as far as security of them, cybersecurity, it might be hard. You have to do a little research. But I, I try to make security part of your buying decision and don't just get the first $30 webcam because it's $30. Yep. And maybe sometime in the future, we will have that like energy star like label for IoT devices that can give some voluntary security performance gradings on these to make it easier for like the average consumer that walks into Best Buy to understand what they're doing. Certainly folks in research and academics have given talks at DEF CON even proposing these type of grading systems. So maybe one day the government will pick one of them up. Maybe. And until then, we've got 1.6 million running this old out-of-date web server just waiting to be popped. Yeah, and I unfortunately gave uh, people an easy button to go find all of these. Way it's to go, crazy. One one point six million, and when it's uh, this is discontinued in what was it, twenty fourteen, and two thousand five. I'm sorry, that's even worse. <laughs> and the latest version is like zero point nine four. It's it didn't even get to a one release. <laughs> Anyways, uh, moving on to our first of two CISA uh, alerts that we're going to be discussing on this episode. Uh, so last week, the FBI and CISA released a joint advisory on the Hive ransomware operations as a part of their ongoing hashtag stop ransomware campaign. Uh, so CISA, FBI, the federal government, DHS are all running this campaign to try and bring, I guess, awareness to different cyber threat actors in the ransomware space. They've been putting out advisories uh, almost every week, it feels like, on various operators with basically all of their TTPs, all of their indicators of compromise, everything you need to know to defend against specific ransomware threats. Uh, so this week, we're highlighting the one on Hive ransomware, which has been pretty prolific over recent months. Uh, they noted that as of November 2022, uh, Hive has victimized over 1,300 companies and received around $100 million in ransom payments, which is kind of nuts. And then through the report, they basically dive through everything about Hive. So it operates as a ransomware as a service model, as we see very frequently. Um, as with a lot of ransomware as a service operations, the initial intrusion really depends on which affiliate picks it up because each of them have their own way of getting into a network and then ultimately deploying this purchased or licensed ransomware service. Some of the ones that they noted in the alert uh, so sometimes they go after exposed single factor logins for RDP, VPNs, and remote access connections, which again, it's 2022, almost 2023. We've still got RDP exposed directly to the internet. That's a little disappointing too. Um, they noted that they've been using bypass methods for multi-factor authentication, including a specific vulnerability in Fortinet's SSL VPN servers. That was a 2020 vulnerability where Apparently, MFA uh, wouldn't prompt for it if you changed the case of usernames that you entered in. Uh, they noted some of them use phishing emails with malicious attachments, and then others have been exploiting the relatively recent exchange server vulnerabilities uh, like proxy logon from 2021. Um, after initial access, they go through some pretty interesting steps to evade detection. So. First and foremost, they identify processes related to backups or antivirus and terminate them. 
Uh, they stop volume and shadow copy services using VSS Admin or PowerShell. Uh, they delete Windows event logs to clean up after their tracks. And they delete virus definitions and disable Windows Defender to try and make it more difficult to detect. Uh, when it comes to exfiltrating data for the double extortion attacks, they use RC clone uh, and then the cloud hosting storage service mega.nz. So overall, this is one of quite a few recent alerts that the FBI and CISA has put out on cyber threat actors. And before we go through all of the recommendations, one that I feel like a lot of organizations potentially don't follow is simply monitor cyber threat reporting, including things like compromised credentials or whatever the latest TTPs are. And what I'm getting at is if you're not already signed up for CISA's alerts and FBI's, like, what is it, like their threat wire, cyber wire, something like that, um, if you're not already signed up for those, those are a great place for just regular updates on what the threat landscape is and some actionable IOCs you can use and actionable tips on defending against whatever the latest evolutions are. Uh, and I'm actually really, uh, I think that this latest push towards operation hashtag stop ransomware is a great example of that, of just getting information out there so that companies can act on it. I feel like uh, CISA has increased the volume of posts and the, these type of informational posts too. So they, they really have upped the game as far as how often they're letting people know that subscribe to the latest threats. Yep. Um, so for the recommendations for this specific threat actor, their top one is actually uh, requiring not just MFA, but now fish resistant MFA. And they've got an entire document on what they mean by that, where they basically grade multi-factor authentication options from most fish resistant to least fish resistant, with the most being like a FIDO key to least being a SMS text message. Um, among those recommendations, they recommend like app-based uh, one-time passwords now, even over just a typical push notification. I think that's mostly just in response to a lot of the push bombing and MFA fatigue uh, attacks that we've been seeing against victims to convince them into just accepting a push. It seems to be like with multi-factor authentication, we started with you know hardware tokens where you have to enter that one-time password thing. Difficult to set up, difficult to get them out to users, a little bit of a pain to enter in that token every time. And as an industry, we move towards push-based notifications to make it really easy. You just open your phone, hit accept. But now that attackers are targeting that, seems as an industry, we're kind of taking a step back and saying, okay, maybe OTPs are a little less convenient for the user, but they're more difficult potentially to trick them into just hitting an accept button. So interesting seeing even CISA uh, now advocate for taking a step back from usability to add a little bit more security. Uh, <laughs> I like their section on uh, recommendations around RDP. So basically they say, if you're using remote desktop protocol, if you allow it within your organization, first, don't, don't allow it. Instead, use something like a virtual desktop environment, which is a little more secure. But if you do, make sure you limit access to just internal resources, require multi-factor authentication. If you need it externally, use a VPN with MFA. And I'd say, well, maybe not most importantly, but very importantly, but often overlooked, monitor the access to RDP to trigger off of suspicious activity on these systems. Uh, the rest of it was boilerplate stuff, backups, make sure they're offline, make sure they're immutable, um, and then implement policies for applications that uh, allow execution of only known or permitted programs. So basically application whitelisting is another way too. 
So this is, again, one of quite a few alerts. Definitely check them out. They've got details on a whole bunch of different ransomware operators so far. And it sounds like, at least based off of history leading up to this, we'll potentially see quite a few more. And what do you think, Corey? What's your prediction on ransomware? Is it going to be going away anytime soon? Or are we stuck in this cycle forever? I think we're stuck in this cycle whilst people are still getting it and paying it. I mean, if to be honest, I do think it will plateau a little uh, or if it hasn't already, but it's not going away anytime soon, that's for sure. I, we still know of plenty of uh, targeted attacks going on. And 100%. And opportunistic too. So continuing our love of CISA on this podcast, uh, the final thing I wanted to touch on was just last week, actually, I guess a week and a half ago. So now uh, CISA published another advisory with details from an actual incident response investigation that they did uh, starting back in June for an unnamed federal civilian executive branch organization or FCEB. Uh, if you're like me and you aren't in the government and you have no idea what the heck FCEB covers, uh, think of it as like your department of health, department of housing department of a uh, human service, like all the, the civilian related federal government departments kind of follow and fall under this umbrella. Um, so the investigation started in April, 2020 when CISA began a retrospective analysis. So basically looking back through old logs using their Einstein IDS system where they identified suspected APT activity at a unnamed FCEB organization. So Einstein's this really cool IDS tool that CISA maintains and operates and monitors across all federal agencies. And I think even some civilian contractors that interact with the federal government. And as you might imagine, across that breadth of space, they get a huge amount of telemetry through it that they can then feed in detection rules, take a look at the logs and match up with whatever the latest IOCs are to identify malicious activity. And so using Einstein during this look back through their logs, they identified bi-directional traffic between the network of this organization and a known malicious address associated with exploitation of the log for shell vulnerability on a VMware Horizon server. So they actually kicked off a on-site incident response engagement after this and determined that the organization was initially compromised as early as February 2022 by what they mapped out to Iran-sponsored APT actors. So you can see like, this was in April, they decided to look back at some of their uh, new or updated IOCs, found this activity dating back to February, and they weren't able to actually kick off the incident response until June. So they'd been sitting there for quite some time. Uh, in their, and out their uh, alert they put out though, they actually include all of the details for the most part of this incident response engagement and the activities they saw from this threat actor. Uh, so they noted they exploited log for shell on VMware Horizon server. They used that to run a PowerShell command that added the entirety of the C drive to Windows Defender's exclusion list, which that should have been a big red flag right there. Uh, downloaded another encoded PowerShell command, which in turn downloaded a zip file. Uh, and that zip file contained the XM rig crypto miner and config files to get it running, which so pausing there for a second, this is supposedly a Iranian state sponsored APT group. 
you have to wonder, like based off IP ranges, which are heavily publicized for federal agencies, like they had to have known they were in a federal agency's network. And the thing they do first is set up a crypto miner. It feels like if you're Iran and you've got access to a federal government network, maybe you don't do something that potentially lets the cat out. I mean, clearly it didn't let the cat out of the bag early. No one detected it until quite a bit later, but I don't know. That that felt kind of weird for me. I, I could see that as like a cyber criminal doing that, but state-sponsored actor, it's kind of weird. Maybe more are turning into North Korea. I think Iran is equally, I, I mean, there's a couple ways to look at it. One, I have a feeling that a lot of the way we track threat actors is TTPs because it's hard to really tell attribute a threat actor. So we use tools, tactics, procedures, seeing the repeated use of code, command and control, infrastructure, techniques, strings that they happen to have in their malware. And one, I think sometimes there's campaigns that are mixed up between state sponsored and criminal where there's tools that both use and sometimes uh, we even had one in our internet security report we found a piece of malware that's well known to be associated with a state sponsored group but it's also sometimes used by criminals so it was hard for us to tell what if this really was state sponsored but anyways getting back to the point even if it is iran and it's state sponsored maybe there is you know as desperate as north korea and they're starting to try to monetize their attacks although like you say it would be really silly if i'm a state sponsored attacker I would attack consumers to do the monetized stuff. I wouldn't put the crypto miner on the government uh, computer because that's, you know, it's better just to get the intelligence from the government computer and hide. So weird for sure, Mark, weird for sure. But who knows? Maybe it's not as state sponsored as there's there's some confusion when you're basing things on TTPs. It's true. And it could even be maybe they're not like maybe it's not, you know, Iran's. NSA doing this. Maybe it's just, you know, a hacking organization that operates within the company that has the blessing, uh, the country that has the blessing of the country. Yeah. Our understanding from anecdote is that happens in Russia a lot where criminal groups aren't officially the Russian government, but they kind of contract and do things (laughs) under without, you know, the Russian government turns their eye against their ransomware. And meanwhile, if they do something that might help a Russian government, they might share information back. So yeah, it could be one of those criminal groups contracting for the state-sponsored, you know. So in this attack though, they didn't stop at the crypto miner. Uh, So they then used RDP and the built-in Windows account default account to move laterally to a VMware VDI KMS host. Uh, They downloaded PSExec, Mimikatz, and NGROCK uh, which is a reverse proxy tool, uh, executed Mimikatz to harvest credentials off those hosts. By the way, even all that drives me crazy. We see it regularly. We still see Mimikatz all the time, but it's one of the most recognizable things. You'd think by uh, for a state-sponsored actor, there's you know power exploit function. There's other ways to to pull credentials and similar techniques that Mimikatz uses without using the plain Jane easy to recognize Mimikatz. So it's kind of surprising that advanced actors still just use off the shelf crap like that. Clearly it works. Um, It it does work, but it's, you think these companies would detect that Mimikatz should be one of the easiest things to detect at this point. Yep. Uh, so they used ng-rock to set up a to proxy RDP connections through this reverse proxy. So basically, it connects out to a server under the attacker's control, 
through that server. They can then RDP into the network to whatever host that they want. They then moved on to the domain controller and obtained a full list of all machines that are attached to the domain. Uh, they changed the local admin password on most of these machines as a backup in case their rogue domain administrator account was detected. Uh, and interestingly, so they attempted to dump the uh, LSATs process to obtain credentials, uh, but were blocked by endpoint protection on the domain controller itself. So at least one technical control caught this. Theoretically, it should have triggered an alert there. And maybe if your domain controller detects someone trying to dump the LSAS process, you should trigger an investigation right then and there. But that didn't appear to happen at the time. Um, so that was the like the main techniques that the threat actors used. Um, but the alert also had some good guidance, I thought, too. Um, so first off, checklist of just immediately isolate the host, collect and review all logs, data, and artifacts. Take a memory By the way, capture and maybe yeah. we should pause for that and and ask you know if if you're a customer listening or a MSP that serves customers, do you have tools that can immediately isolate a host, like a low tech shop with just basic AV? That probably means going and unplugging it, or or maybe if you're lucky, turning it off at a switch remotely. But if you don't have something like EPP or EDR software, endpoint protection that includes this, the, the EDR part is the endpoint detection and response, the thing that can help you remediate. And a lot of products, of course, ours included WatchGuard EPDR, will allow you to just press button to isolate the host. And by isolation, that means we cut it off the network entirely, except for one rule that allows it to still report back to the centrally managed EPP. So, you know, when you say, when you hear isolate host, you know, that might be obvious to you, but think about how long it takes you. If you don't have equipment that can help you just turn that network off remotely, especially in this hybrid work from home environment, you should definitely consider updating to something that will. You know, it, it sucks if your only way to isolate is call up a, a person and tell them to turn off the computer or, or the Wi-Fi or pull the wire or whatever. Yeah, 100%. Um... If you have the capabilities, do a memory capture and take a forensic image of the affected devices. And if you don't have the expertise, they recommend working with a third-party incident response organization that has that expertise. And I personally think it, 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 if, if you're learning this during response, it's bad, but I don't think the expertise is hard. There's free tools that will help with this, and you can watch a few YouTube videos. So even I could do it And if you if you want to know how low the bar is. But if you don't necessarily have your own security team, even like this is where an MSSP can absolutely help. Oh, out. absolutely. For sure. And if you don't have someone that knows how to do it now, this is not the kind of thing you want to learn during an incident. Correct. So you want to be, and that goes for having a third party. If you don't, don't have this capability now, even having a third party ready and on retainer when this happens is important. You don't want to be looking for and validating that third party during an event. Yep. Uh, then finally, report the incident to CISA if you're critical infrastructure or to the FBI CyberWatch if you are and or aren't as well too. Now, when it came to their mitigation tips, it was all fairly similar to the last alert we just highlighted, but there was one kind of technical or at least in the weeds thing they recommended that I thought we should highlight. They recommended implementing the credential guard feature for Windows 10 and uh, Server 2016 and higher. So this is enabled by default on Windows 11 Enterprise 22H2 and higher. 
Uh, and if you're not familiar with the feature, it basically virtualizes and isolates the local security authority process, the LSA process, from the rest of the system so that you can't just load up Mimikatz and dump credentials out of it. It's entirely isolated and then uh, interacted with just through like API calls effectively in the underlying OS. Pretty cool feature in Windows that, at least for newer versions, is enabled by default. But for older ones, you'll need to go edit a registry entry in order to uh, turn it on. Um, which, I mean, it's good seeing Microsoft add stuff like this. Like it wasn't until Windows 8 that credentials in the LSAS process were even encrypted. Like prior to that, they were all plain text. So Windows 7, if you got Mimikatz on, you could dump credentials for anyone that had logged into that system uh, recently. So I like seeing improvements like this from Microsoft and enabling them as defaults as time progresses too. Uh, either way, interesting uh, advisory. Cool seeing an actual incident response from CISA. Like that is one of their core pillars of what they actually do is it's not just advocacy out there, but they are the branch, the organization responsible for incident response in the federal government for these agencies. And it's nice to them share some of these details out to yeah. us so we can see what's going on. This debrief of learnings will be is super valuable. Normally as a company, you have to go through an incident to get learnings and what you want to avoid is, is having to do that. It's better to learn from someone else's learnings. By the way, so as temporarily distracted, Mark, I got this really cool random WhatsApp message from some number I don't know telling me as a dear friend, I better uh, join this BitC fan discussion group and they'll, they'll teach me how to make a lot of money off of cryptocurrency. I better reply right away. Make sure to give them my wallet. Ever since Elon Musk took over Twitter, I've been tagged in like three posts a day from people saying, whoa, look at this. Get rich now on this latest crypto scam literally multiple times a day. And it has correlated with when Elon Musk took over Twitter, so I'm blaming him. This is WhatsApp, by the way. And uh, I forget what we weighed our, our did we give ourselves a win on that prediction? Because if not, it's still not the end of the year. So it's more anecdotal evidence that it's closer to a win. I think that one was a win simply because of anecdotal evidence like that and the, uh, the Uber breach, if I remember right from the gradings episode. Well, there we go. At least I can take the anecdotal and show the viewers that I got one live while we did the podcast. <laughs> you shouldn't be sharing those secrets, though. Oh, those secrets? Yeah, Corey, you should be like keeping this information to yourself so you can get rich and retire. Make that thousand to five thousand a day in cryptocurrency. Yeah, you're right. What am I doing? Make sure you click that link and let us know how it goes. I will. I will for sure. I think I, I'll invest all my earnings there. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter, as long as it still exists. I'm at X-O-R-R-O underscore. Corey is at uh, SecAdept. Yes, that's it. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.